Hello, everybody. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. So glad you're joining in with us today. Today is session five, and we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to be discussing chapter two, verses 31 through 49. So, how do you feel about history? I have to say, I haven't met many people who are ambivalent about it. I mean, they either hate talking about history or they love talking about history. And I think one of the reasons people may not enjoy discussing or learning history is because they think it's irrelevant or it doesn't pertain to them. And I can understand that. I mean, you've got the kids, the job, the dog, trying to live on a fixed income in an economy that isn't. But if you think about it, the Bible is a book of history. I mean, it's a living, breathing word of God, but it's also history. As a matter of fact, the Bible is often used as a historical resource for archaeologists in order to corroborate the evidence that they find in the ground. For instance, did you know that the Bible contains the only surviving written account of the city of Jericho? And archaeologists refer to that account sometimes in their digs. So today we're going to be discussing some history. Because as you remember from last time, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's had a dream, a vision given to him by God concerning his future, but he's not sure what it means. And Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Hebrew exiles, are the only ones of his wise men who can interpret it, because God revealed it to them, what the meaning of the vision was. And all right, I've got a spoiler alert, Nebuchadnezzar's dream involves the rise and fall of Gentile nations in Nebuchadnezzar's future. So it happened in Nebuchadnezzar's future, but our past. So you might be thinking, what does the rise and fall of some Gentile nations in my past have to do with me? I mean, it's history, but I believe it has everything to do with us. Because the point and purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is to show God's authority and control over world events, and that eventually all worldly kingdoms are going to fall. But there is one kingdom that will not fall, a kingdom that is not made with human hands, a kingdom that will endure forever. So which kingdom do you want to be a part of? The kingdom of humanity that seeks only personal pleasure and will one day be crushed? Or the kingdom of God? that seeks the glory of its creator and will never pass away. And one more point about the relevance of history. When you see the proclamation of future events being played out just as they were described by God, it's proof of God's reliability and trustworthiness. If he did exactly what he said he would do then, well, it's all the more reason for us to trust him now. So let's read Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation of it, from chapter 2 of Daniel, verses 31 through 49. Your Majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it and struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. 
Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the, and the, toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fire clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So, Nebuchadnezzar dreams about an enormous statue made of four different metals, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and clay. Now, each metal represents a Gentile nation that would one day rule over Israel. Now, notice that even though there are four different metals, they are still a part of the same body. Although different empires, they are still a part of the same kingdom of humanity, just under different phases. So we've established the fact that one of the main purposes of this dream is to show that God is in control of world events. But why give the vision to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of a pagan nation? I mean, the vision involves the Gentile nations and their rule over Israel. So why didn't God give the dream to Daniel? Well, I believe that's the point. The dream is about Gentile nations and was given to a Gentile king. 
Now, God is going to give Daniel a dream or vision about these same kingdoms later on, basically um, in chapter 7. Now, I'm just speculating here, but maybe God chose to give the vision to Nebuchadnezzar first, because at that time in history, no one on the earth was equal to Nebuchadnezzar in power, in wealth, in influence, in military strength, in fame, and notoriety. And yet in verse 46, we find he is going to fall face down in humility and claim that Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. You see, one day every knee will bow in honor and humility to God Almighty, and no person or kingdom will ever be stronger than God's. So the head of gold on the statue represents Babylon. Jeremiah 51.7 says Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand, making the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations go mad. Gold also alludes to Babylon's great riches. People in Babylon used gold as a material to make works of art. Gold was used to decorate Nebuchadnezzar's shrines and even public buildings. Now, much of the world's idolatry can also be traced back to Babylon. And as one commentator describes, the fountainhead of idolatry, the harlot of Revelation 17, is named Babylon. The harlot of Revelation 17 will do what literal Babylon did in the past, oppress God's people and propagate a false religious system. And all of this power and opulence was given by God. See Jeremiah 27, 5-7. Now, someone may ask the question, why would a loving God allow a ruthless dictator like Nebuchadnezzar such power? But remember, like everything God does, there's a purpose in it. God was using Babylon both to punish Judah for her rebellion, as well as to preserve a remnant of Israelites, because Nebuchadnezzar brought exiles back to Babylon. And one day they would return to Jerusalem and even rebuild the temple. And not only that, now I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but for the Jew, all of religious life revolved around the temple. That was where God met with the people. That's where they made atonement for their sins through sacrifice. The priests were intercessors between God and humans. But now all that's gone. Jewish exiles are in Babylon now with no temple, no sacrifice, and no priests. Their relationship with God became less about the physical temple and ritual and more about the heart and a focus on scripture, thus laying the foundation for Messiah and the gospel. So even in the midst of difficulty and discipline, God still offers redemption and restoration. And don't think for a moment that the paganism and ruthlessness of Babylon would go unpunished, because God proclaims in both Jeremiah and Isaiah Babylon's destruction. And that's also what's indicated in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 39 says, After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. So while Nebuchadnezzar was a strong and powerful leader, the kings succeeding him were not. The last king, Nabonidus, left Babylon to worship the sun god in an oasis in the Arabian desert 
and made his son Belshazzar co-regent in Babylon in his place. And as we're going to see in chapter 5, Belshazzar was a weak and ineffectual ruler. So the head of gold, which was Babylon, disintegrated and was conquered by the chest and arms of silver, which represented the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, who conquered Babylon in 539 BC. The leader of Persia was Cyrus the Great. He conquered the Medes, and then they were absorbed into a united kingdom, the Medes and Persians, whose king was Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was said to march into Babylon practically unopposed and conquered it easily. The defeat of Babylon expanded the Persian kingdom to include almost the entire ancient Near East. It became one of the largest empires in history. The main religion of Persia was Zoroastrianism, named after the Persian prophet Zoroaster, who taught followers to worship a single deity instead of the many deities worshipped by previous kingdoms. Incidentally, their false religion is still practiced today in parts of Iran and India. The Bible even praises King Cyrus of Persia for allowing the Hebrew exiles to return to Jerusalem. But eventually, the Persian Empire also entered a period of decline after a failed invasion of Greece by King Xerxes I in 480 BC. Incidentally, a couple years later, Esther would become queen of Persia. So the cost of defending Persia's land depleted the empire's funds, leading to heavier taxation of her subjects and a weakened kingdom. Verse 39 of Daniel says the kingdom represented by the silver chest and arms was inferior to Babylon. And this could be due to the fact that the rule of the Medes and Persians was less centralized and less absolute. So the second kingdom was conquered by a third kingdom, represented by the stomach and thighs of bronze on the statue. Verse 39 says the third kingdom of bronze will rule the whole earth. This kingdom is the kingdom of Greece, led by Alexander the Great, who conquered the empire of the Medes and Persians around 331 BC. Alexander the Great extended his empire all the way into India, which in that day was considered the whole world. He once boasted that he had conquered the whole world and wept that there were no more worlds to conquer. Alexander was one of the most skilled military leaders in human history, Yet his hunger for power consumed him. He even had some of the people closest to him murdered. He also oversaw the advancement of Greek culture by instituting schools to teach Greek philosophy, which precipitated a major cultural change and had an enormous impact on world history. But even military might and cultural sophistication cannot endure, because after Alexander's death, which was at the early age of 33, after only being on the throne for 12 years. After he died, the kingdom became divided among his generals because there was no heir who had been appointed, and eventually it was conquered by the legs of iron on the statue, the Empire of Rome. Rome defeated Greece around 146 BC. Verse 40 says, It will be strong as iron, it will, like iron crushes and smashes, will smash all others. 
the Roman Empire was characterized by strength. Rome and its cruel conquests swallowed up lands and peoples that were once a part of the three previous empires combined and assimilated them into itself. The Empire of Rome was built on the backs of its citizenry. Rome was known for its ruthless brutality, but also, due to its vast extent and long endurance, the institutions and culture of Rome had a lasting influence on language, art, philosophy, law, and forms of government. But verse 33 says, the feet of the statue were only partly iron and partly clay. The Roman Empire eventually also grew weak. Rome was characterized by division. It conquered many territories, but it could not unite its people to form a united empire. And again, the need for continued expansion and to gain more power made governing and defending such a vast territory difficult. Verses 41 and 42 say, You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle. So the feet and ten toes of the statue represent an empire that began as iron, but regressed into a state of clay mixed with iron. The Roman Empire was characterized by division, partly strong and partly brittle. It was strong organizationally, but weak morally. Now, there's a wide divergence of opinion as to who the ten toes represent. Some scholars believe that the ten toes refer to ten kingdoms that were once a part of the Roman Empire, that once constituted the Roman Empire. Another view is that they are a ten-nation confederacy, a revived Roman Empire that will appear on the territory once ruled by Rome. The final view is that the number ten is a number meaning completeness and not meant to be taken literally, and so the ten toes may refer to all the kingdoms which follow Rome on the stage of history. Now, according to verse 45, a stone broke off without a hand touching it and struck the statue on its feet. And the statue shattered and became like chaff from a threshing floor. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. And the stone that struck the statue became a mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone represents the messianic kingdom. The stone did not come from human hands. It's different than all other kingdoms. It's a spiritual, heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom set up by God himself. The word stone or rock often refers to Christ in scripture. See Psalm 118.22, Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16, and 1 Peter 2.6-8. through 8. One scholar says the stone which destroys is the foundation of the church. The God of heaven would set up a kingdom of a different sort. It would be indestructible, non-transferable, powerful, and eternal. It may coexist with kingdoms of this world for a time, but eventually it will triumph over all forms of human government. Verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. 
It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. James Smith says that Daniel describes this as a sudden, powerful, decisive blow, possibly representing the sweeping away of world powers at the second coming of Christ. Matthew 21:44 says, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but the one on whom it falls will be crushed. And they will not only be crushed, but they will become like chaff on a threshing floor, the text says. In ancient times, grain was winnowed on an elevated space in the open air by throwing the grain into the air with a shovel, and the wind would blow away the seed coverings or the inedible chaff. And this is the destiny of the kingdoms of humanity. So again, which kingdom are you a part of? Now, after hearing Daniel's interpretation, the king immediately falls face down before Daniel. I mean, now this must have been quite a sight to behold, that the all-powerful King Nebuchadnezzar would fall prostrate before any man is unfathomable. But he knows that this is the correct interpretation, and he's so relieved to finally have an answer. And again, Daniel was not delivering good news here. I mean, he's predicting Nebuchadnezzar's destruction. But he doesn't try to soften the message because he's afraid. He delivers the truth and trust God with his life. And Nebuchadnezzar fortunately chose not to kill the messenger, but instead to honor God. Verse 47 says, The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. So, what insights are to be gained from this passage? Well, first of all, our hope and security should not be placed in strong leadership or a strong military or a strong government. So where should our hope be placed? It should be placed on these four great truths. God and not man is sovereign over world affairs. God has a plan for the world and God is ordering history according to his plan. And the kingdoms of this world are human and therefore temporary. Only God's kingdom is eternal. And that should give us hope for today. So our challenge is to trust God with our future. I mean, if you're happy with the way things are, then they're only going to get better in God's kingdom. And if you're not happy with the way things are, then trust God's plan. Trust that it's going to come to completion, and it will be more glorious than we can ever imagine. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.